Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast, and of course, we're going to be joined by Professor Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad affecting LGBTQ people. And <laughs> I can't believe it, but the stories that we're going to talk about um, range from the most breaking, including the litigation around the hateful action in Texas targeting transgender youth and their parents and their doctors, but also some news that dates all the way back to uh, the, the Obergefell decision and Kim Davis. Uh, and her refusal to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Yes, she is still in the news, uh, and there's still litigation. So we'll talk about that case, and then another case involving HIV discrimination. Uh, It's a busy episode. It's uh, all sorts of topics, and I can't wait to chat with Art Leonard. It's like I've turned on the recording. Art, it's so good to see you this morning. It's a beautiful day in New York. How are you? You're in a t-shirt. You look like you're ready for this this beautiful weather. Nice. I, I am I am glorying in the sudden warmth this week. It's great. Yeah. It is great. I, I did a bunch of planting last spring right around this time. And there's still usually one frost that comes back through and it wiped out everything. So I'm trying to remain, you know, tempered in my assessment of where we are in spring, but well, I hope you manage to elude your frost. <laughs> Preserve your plants. <laughs> Thanks. Do you do any planting? Do you have a, like a little garden or? No, I, I I live on the Upper West Side in a, an apartment building. What, what I have to worry about is a potential strike by the building workers next week. <laughs> oh, no. So then your garbage just piles up or, or what happens? Well, our super claims that he's not in the union and therefore he or he's not under this collective bargaining agreement. So he's going to take charge of doing the trash removal and everything else. A few weeks ago, they said they'd have a sign-up list asking for volunteers to help with the door and to help with the trash removal and vacuuming the hallways and stuff like that. But then we got a notice a day or two ago saying, no, the super is going to take charge of all that stuff. It just won't be done as frequently. You should volunteer to do some dusting. (laughs) First, I have to do dusting in my apartment before I can do dusting outside. Uh, It's so good to see I have a husband who, uh, who is allergic to dusting. Oh, you know what? Me too. I'm allergic to dishes. I'm allergic to trash. Yeah. Um, all of those things. Well, let's dig right into this uh, episode because we've got a lot to cover and it and it runs the gamut of, of topics. And it's always so exciting when we get to talk about a whole variety of things. But this first case that we're going to talk about, my God, it's 2022 and we are still talking about Kim Davis. This is the Kentucky County clerk that famously refused to do her job and issue a marriage license to a same-sex couple. She went on to speak at CPAC and became kind of a right-wing darling along with the really big hair and the house dresses. And was- She had a meeting with the Pope, remember? Oh, for real? Oh my God, I don't- 
I don't remember that. But yeah, when he was uh, visiting the U.S., uh, someone arranged in Washington for her to meet with the Pope. He uh, didn't know who she was. Right, I figure, but still, oh my God, she was something of like kind of the symbol of the anti-marriage resistance in the face of the law that was out of control and a Supreme Court that that overstepped. And um, so let's talk about why we're talking about this. We're talking about this because there was a new decision in the case. You know, the, the amazing thing, and this is our uh, one of our lead stories in, in Law Notes this month. Uh, Kim Davis was sued by a same-sex couple to whom she would not issue a marriage license in the wake of the Obergefell decision in 2015. Uh, she, uh, when, when this decision came out, she evidently was really panicked about what to do because under Kentucky law, the county clerk who's elected, the county clerk has to sign the marriage license. And she said, it's against my religion. I don't believe that same-sex couples have a right to marry. I believe if I am complicit in any way in this, I am damning my soul. You know, I'm violating my religious tenets. And she asked, you know, she spoke with the uh, county attorneys, the, the governor, Governor Bashir, actually sent a letter out to all the county clerks in the state. And after the Obergefell decision and said, now, you know, you must issue these licenses if people come and they're qualified. And under the Supreme Court's decision, same sex couples are qualified. So she was advised by the governor, not, a, not personally, but by a form letter that was sent out to all the clerks, but also the county attorney, because she consulted the county attorney. She said, do I have to do this? And he said, yeah, it's your job. But she said, I'm not going to do it. Uh, let's see what happens, whether any same-sex couples actually show up. And uh, there were two that showed up, were turned down and sued. Uh, David Ermold and David Moore were one couple. And the other was James Yates and Will Smith, not uh, Will Smith of Academy fame. <laughs> But at any rate, oh, they were turned get into that. I don't care what our feelings are about, yes. about Will Smith. <laughs> well, this is a different Will Smith. Okay. So, so they sued and they found themselves in front of uh, federal district judge David Bunning. And there's a story there. If Bunning is a familiar name, if you're a baseball fan, you remember Jim Bunning, Hall of Fame pitcher who went on to be a Republican senator from Kentucky, whose son is David Bunning. And uh, when David Bunning was nominated by George Bush, he was only 35 years old. He hadn't been practicing law that long. The ABA said he's not qualified to be a trial judge because he just hasn't done enough. But uh, the Republican Senate pushed him through. Republican Senate majority pushed him through. And uh, he turned out not to be too bad for gay rights issues. Not, you know, a 100% person, but he's turned out to be a reasonably good judge. And he's had several cases uh, over the years that involved LGBT issues and uh, has generally been pretty fair minded. Uh, and he he struggled with this case, uh, but he was he was willing to uh, to order on a temporary basis until we got to the final merits. He was willing to order Kim Davis to start issuing marriage licenses or at least to authorize her assistance in the office to sign in her name. Uh, and she refused, so he threw her in jail for contempt. So she was in jail for a while, and then a deal was negotiated by which she got out of jail, but she allowed uh, deputy clerks in her office to sign. And ultimately, the legislature did what she'd been asking all along uh, to change the law so the county clerk doesn't have to personally sign the marriage licenses. 
Uh, but in any event, uh, the byplay of all that, these guys were delayed in getting their marriage licenses, although they finally did get them, but they decided to press uh, suit for damages. And uh, for injunctive relief, but that dropped out of the case when the legislature changed the law. So it wasn't going to be a problem anymore. But uh, they persisted in suing for damages. And this is like uh, you could teach a little federal courts course out of the history of this case, because it's been up to the Sixth Circuit twice. There was a U.S. Supreme Court cert denial along the way. Uh, But ultimately, on March 18th of this year, Judge Bunning ruled on the merits. Uh, She said she violated their constitutional rights. She did so knowingly and intentionally, which means that she could be liable for punitive damages as well as compensatory damages uh, as being sued in her individual capacity. Uh, She wanted to claim qualified immunity. She said at the time, this was shortly after Obergefell, there were lots of people who were criticizing that opinion and saying that the Supreme Court had overreached and uh, that uh, there were even people in some states, you may remember, there was a, uh, a judge, a state Supreme Court uh, chief justice in another state who opined that the decision was not binding on the state courts, uh, Roy Moore. And he ended up running unsuccessfully for the Senate after being disciplined by the judicial uh, disciplinary board in that state. But, you know, it was, it was a wild and woolly time. And she said, and there was no clear absolutely legally established right. And uh, Judge Bunny should know the U.S. Supreme Court said same-sex couples have a right to marry. Uh, That clearly establishes it. That's binding on you as a county clerk who took an oath of office to uphold the Constitution of the United States. So he said, uh, granted summary judgment to the plaintiffs, but did not award damages because they didn't ask for damages in the summary judgment motion. They said they agree it is necessary for them to prove their damages. Uh, because most of what they're uh, claiming for is humiliation, emotional distress, et cetera. Uh, because, you know, they were delayed a few weeks getting a marriage license. Uh, how, what kind of money are you going to award for that? Nominal damages. But the point is that he made the finding here. He said, uh, it is clear that this is intentional discrimination by Kim Davis on a ground forbidden by the U.S. Supreme Court. So she may be subject to punitive damages. So I can't grant summary judgment on damages. We need a trial. We need to determine. Uh, so after this decision, the question is, will there be a negotiation about damages? Or, uh, you know, and will the state pick up the tab for her on damages? Or is she going to be stuck? And does she have the resources to pay? You know, there are all kinds of questions uh, that linger here. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and if you read this, this one statement, uh, from uh, early in the litigation by Judge Bunning, which I think is very important. Uh, he said, our form of government will not survive unless we as a society agree to respect the U.S. Supreme Court's decisions, regardless of our personal opinions. Davis is certainly free to disagree with the court's opinion, as many Americans likely do, but that does not excuse her from complying with it. To hold otherwise would set a dangerous precedent. And uh, as to her qualified immunity, because she, she's still pressing this qualified immunity thing, uh, even though the Sixth Circuit rejected it once earlier in the uh, litigation. He wrote, any argument that Davis made a mistake instead of a conscious decision to violate the law is not only contrary to the record, but also borders on incredulous. So, and, and 
the ultimate payback is Mr. Ermold, one of the plaintiffs, ran against her in the primary, uh, wanted to run against her when she was up for uh, for a county clerk. And she was running on the Republican ticket. He was a Democrat, so he ran for the in the Democratic primary with the idea of taking her on, and he lost. Uh, but the guy who won defeated her in the election, so she was not reelected. I think the people in uh, in that county. Uh, it's a uh, Rowan County, Kentucky. I think they were a bit embarrassed by right. all of this. Also, that she was incurring all these expenses for the county litigation yeah. and everything. You kind of just want your county clerk to not make news. You right. know? The county the clerk candidate. should be seen and not heard. <laughs> right. We don't care. But I certainly don't want my taxpayer do- dollars going to a personal, you know, campaign of of her own. It seems extreme. But, but that's um, an important important principle in the case, though, that yeah. I think is worth repeating, and that is when you're a public employee and your religious views interfere with doing your job, the answer is to quit your job. Because as a public employee, you're doing your job for the government, not for yourself. Right. So you're not there to enact your personal religious views. We have an establishment clause in this country. Your personal religious views do not dictate how you perform your job as a government official. And I know, you know, during the marriage fight, there were also all those judges who were coming out and saying, I'm not doing these ceremonies. If I have to do these ceremonies, then I'm not doing any ceremonies. And without without, um, an exception, all of the courts, um, the advisory opinions that kind of come from the Supreme Court of the state saying what the judges had to do, all said, you know, you have to follow the law. You have to, if you perform any, you have to perform all. You can't, you know, make a statement that you're not going to perform any because of this reason that that would violate codes of ethics. So this was a huge deal, but at the same time, it seems like a lot of these, you might be aware, but it seems like a lot of the opinions from courts and the like all came down on the side of following the law if you're a public employee. Now, there is one cautionary note we should sound before getting off this case, and that is when it went to the Supreme Court, this was on an appeal from the Sixth Circuit's rejection of Davis's qualified immunity claim. Uh, Cert was denied, but a statement was issued by Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, and they characterized Davis as being one of the first victims of this court's cavalier treatment of religion in the Obergefell case and concluded this petition provides a stark reminder of the consequences of Obergefell by choosing to privilege a novel constitutional right over the religious liberty interests explicitly protected in the First Amendment and by doing so undemocratically, undemocratically, the court voted, uh, the court has created a problem that only it can fix. That is, there was this stubborn uh, right-wing part of the Supreme Court that wants to look for ways to narrow the right to marry and possibly overturn it. I mean, people have been asking, is it possible that the Supreme Court could overturn Obergefell? And anything is possible at the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. You know, and we, we still have, we have states that have refused to revise their marriage statutes in response to Obergefell on the hopes that if someday the Supreme Court reverses it, they can revert immediately to their prior position. Uh, there, there are still state constitutional amendments on the books that uh, ban same-sex marriage. So, you know, we've, we've got to be watchful. We've got to be careful. 
It's true. There, there was a time where, you know, we were asking more regularly, would the Supreme Court reverse itself? Do we need to protect Obergefell um, by passing state laws um, to put it in place? And at the same time, you know, it's been a little while, but now that that argument um, that we do need to really be conscious and that Obergefell could go is back in the in the headlines because of um, the way that even Justice, um, soon to be Justice Katenji Brown Jackson was questioned on substantive due process and the like. Right, and, and so we have to be watching especially closely when the court finally decides the abortion cases that are pending because uh, there is a growing uh, view on the, uh, the right wing of the court against substantive due process. And substantive due process is the underlying theory for the Obergefell case really. I mean, there was an equal protection component, but the equal protection component was based on the idea that there was a fundamental right in terms of marriage, which derives from substantive due process. So, yeah, and the know, sodomy ruling. I mean, right? all of it Lawrence. goes back to Lawrence v. Texas. I mean, and we have to remember Lawrence was an overruling of, of Bowers versus Hardwick. So the court does overrule. Sometimes we like them to overrule bad decisions, but they, they consider this to be a bad decision uh, over Obergefell people like Alito and Thomas. All right, well, let's go ahead and take a short break. And when we come back, we have another case to talk about. All right, we're back. The never-ending attack on trans kids and parents continues, and today we're going to update you on the legal developments that are surrounding the action that was taken by the Attorney General of Texas and the Governor, um, Greg Abbott of Texas, to investigate and prosecute parents and doctors for providing gender-affirming treatment for trans youth. Um, so I know our listeners are probably eager to hear what's going on with this action and then the, the ensuing litigation. Why don't we dive right into it? Okay. Uh, so, and I don't think we didn't talk about this last month, did we? No, we didn't. I don't no. think so. All right. Because it was happening like right at the end of February. So uh, at the, at, on February 22nd, Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, purportedly responding to a, an inquiry from a member of the state legislature, issued an, a formal opinion, number KP-0401, agreeing that uh, it is child abuse for parents to provide gender-affirming care for uh, minors who claim to be transgender, and that it was child abuse for doctors to provide that care. That is to, to give anyone under the age of 18 uh, puberty blocking uh, medications or hormones, certainly to uh, perform surgical alteration, but surgical alteration really isn't on the table because under the uh, world uh, WPATH standards, the, uh, the professional standards followed by the medical profession regarding this issue, uh, you have to be 18 or older to have a surgical alteration, but hormones, you know, and, uh, and puberty blockers, which uh, make it easier to do a transition if you do it before somebody has started to develop secondary sex characteristics. Uh, so uh, 
uh, Paxton issues his opinion and immediately, immediately Abbott issues a directive, Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott, to the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, directing them to investigate any parents or doctors suspected of providing gender affirming treatment to transgender kids with the possibility of criminal prosecution under the child abuse laws and the loss of professional licenses and loss of, of jobs. If people are convicted you know, of a crime, lose their job, people who are licensed professionals might lose their licenses if they're in the relevant fields. Uh, and in fact, gentlemen, the, 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 the lead plaintiffs in this, in this case, which was brought, I mean, uh, you, you immediately had the ACLU of Texas and Lambda teaming up right. uh, to, uh, to challenge this in, in the courts uh, because what happened was, and uh, the privacy of the plaintiffs is being protected by calling them Jane and John Doe here and they're, uh, their transgender uh, daughter is Mary Doe in this litigation, but there's a doctor who's, who's, uh, who is not uh, going anonymously, uh, Dr. Megan Mooney, who provides gender-affirming care, is a co-plaintiff in this case. Uh, but Jane Doe was a social worker at the department, the very department which uh, immediately issued as if they had gone through an administrative process, which they had. This all happened in a flash. Uh, is like overnight, all of a sudden, she's been suspended from her job. She's being subjected to an investigation. There's a possibility she'll lose her job and her license because they are providing gender affirming care to her daughter. Uh, her husband, uh, who uh, has been doing youth volunteer work and stuff like that, might lose all of his ability to do this work if he's convicted of child abuse. Then you go on a registry, you know, a sex offender registry with all the restrictions that flow from that. Uh, and uh, the doctor says, you know, I could be sued by patients who claim that it's professional malpractice not to provide because there's a consensus out there in the medical profession that uh, when someone has been diagnosed with gender dysphoria that's severe enough to require uh, a transition, you can provide this and you should provide this uh, to people who are uh, on the verge of puberty because it's helpful to, to do uh, puberty blockers. Uh, and so you uh, reduce the amount of uh, surgical alteration and other things that have to be done later. Uh, so they went into state court here uh, and uh, this, you know, I discuss in the article in, in Law Notes uh, something about the political geography of Texas. I mean, it's generally thought of as a red state, although the last Senate election was close enough that you might call it a purple state. It could go either way. But Texas, uh, on the state legislative level, the, the state legislature is solidly Republican, and the state Supreme Court, which is elected statewide, is solidly Republican, and they've had Republican governors uh, for the last 30 years. Uh, so, uh, there are exceptions to that though, of Republican domination. And, uh, in Austin, the capital is a democratic city. It has had democratic mayors. It has had democratic city councils that has, uh, passed progressive legislation. And, uh, there's a lot of democratic judges in Austin and appeals from, uh, the Austin, uh, court go to the third court of appeals and the third court of appeals has a lot of elected democratic judges on it too. 
so this case started off auspiciously in the right place. And, and you look at San Antonio, Houston in particular, that there are a lot of local people who are Democrats uh, in, the, in the justice system. So uh, they sued in Austin. Uh, they were assigned to uh, a, uh, a judge, Travis County District Judge Amy Clark Meacham, a Democrat. And on March 2nd, she granted a motion for a temporary restraining order by the plaintiffs who said that if you don't stop this, uh, the state is, is interfering with our employment. They're interfering, they're potentially interfering with the treatment for our daughter and her doctor. You know, we, we need immediate relief. And she gave them immediate relief, but only them. Uh, it, it wasn't certified as a class action at that point. Uh, only them. Uh, and uh, Paxton, the attorney general, his office immediately filed an appeal uh, and was rebuffed by a three-judge panel of the uh, third district, uh, the third court of appeal. Uh, they said, uh, you can't appeal a TRO like this. This isn't a final ruling. This is just temporary. It's just until the judge holds a hearing on uh, issuing a temporary injunction. They use the term temporary injunction evidently in Texas rather than preliminary injunction, which is the term we use up here in New York in, in the federal courts. Uh, and she had scheduled a hearing on that for the following week. So, uh, you know, what's the rush? What's the rush to go to the Court of Appeals? So she held the, the hearing on uh, March 11th. And uh, at the conclusion of the hearing, she ruled from the bench. She said, yeah, you're entitled to a temporary injunction here. And she issued an opinion later that day. Uh, and it's interesting, the, uh, the opinion that uh, Judge Meacham issued on the uh, temporary restraining order was focused primarily on the irreparable injury to the plaintiffs if there wasn't an immediate relief uh, because of the interference with their lives. Uh, but here with the temporary, uh, with the, the evidence was presented, she said, well, they have a good chance of prevailing on the merits of uh, both constitutional and statutory claims. There's, there's a possible preemption here under federal law because of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and uh, in addition, there are constitutional claims that are being made by the plaintiffs here with federal constitutional claims. But she said they have a likelihood of succeeding on the merits here. And of course, the irreparable injury is clear. But in addition, she said, what the governor and the department and the commissioner, Jamie Martin, who, uh, who issued the, uh, what well, was basically a, a, a Jamie Masters, uh, issued basically a, a regulation. Uh, they didn't go through any of the required administrative procedures. And furthermore, she said, this is ultra virus as far as the governor is concerned. This is a matter for the legislature. He said, no one has been prosecuted or investigated for child abuse for gender transition prior to the date that Paxton issued his uh, opinion. It's not like this is, this is established or this to be contemplated uh, under the child abuse statutes is what the legislature was intending. And besides, uh, and it may have been the Republican legislator who uh, sent the letter to Paxton asking for the opinion. There was a proposal in the legislature to uh, define uh, this kind of uh, care as child abuse, and it didn't, it didn't uh, pass. It didn't go anywhere. 
so they're trying to legislate and they're not even following administrative procedure in doing so. Uh, so she said it was it was beyond their jurisdiction to issue this change of policy. And by then, uh, Lambda and ACLU in Texas had heard reports of other people being investigated because when, when Paxton filed an appeal and he had filed an immediate appeal again uh, from, from this temporary injunction, he said, well, my filing an appeal uh, puts a stay, puts a hold. It supersedes the injunction until the Court of Appeal decides. So the Court of Appeal moved very quickly and the Court of Appeal issued a decision stating that uh, the temporary injunction should stand. And this, uh, this really uh, gravitated heavily on the issue of preserving the status quo. Because when you issue an injunction against the government, uh, preserving the status quo is a legitimate reason. Uh, if irreparable injury will flow from allowing the government to do the policy that they're doing. And uh, the court said, and this is a change of policy by the government that is going to cause irreparable injury to the plaintiffs. And the injunction preserves the status quo and the status quo to be preserved is the status quo, what it was before they took this action. And before they took this action, people in Texas were accessing gender-affirming care and state the government wasn't interfering with it. So the a second opinion coming out of the third court of appeal, upholding Judge Meacham this time on the temporary injunction. And of course, the state's going to appeal to the state Supreme Court. We haven't had a ruling yet from the state Supreme Court. But all of this is moving so fast. We had two written opinions from Judge Meacham, two written opinions from the court of appeal, and now going to the Supreme Court of the state and in a matter of just weeks, it's you know, just, just keeping up with this was, uh, was kind of difficult. And also because these opinions weren't all officially published, but they tend to show up eventually on Lexis or Westlaw. Uh, so you can see them. Uh, we don't know what's gonna happen in the Texas Supreme Court, but the Texas Supreme Court, unlike the third, uh, Court of Appeal in Austin or the uh, or the trial judge in Austin is solidly Republican conservative. They were all appointed to vacancies by uh, Rick Perry and Greg Abbott. Uh, the way it works in Texas when there's a vacancy, the governor appoints, then they have to stand for election at some point. Uh, and uh, I think virtually all of them have been reelected uh, statewide. So, you know, they're Republicans. Right. Uh, but because there are federal constitutional and statutory issues in the case, because there are possibility of preemption and the Biden administration immediately, I mean, moving pretty fast for the Biden administration, they put out a statement that, that said that under the Affordable Care Act, uh, you can't discriminate against people based on gender identity and depriving people of medically necessary care, which many courts, uh, and, and this has been litigated pretty heavily around the country in the prison context, whether, they, whether uh, providing hormones to people is medically necessary care for uh, gender dysphoria. And there's close to unanimity in the federal courts on this point, uh, not total unanimity. There are a few outlier circuits, but uh, there's, there's pretty heavy precedent for the idea that this is medically necessary care. In fact, uh, the Internal Revenue Service considers it medically necessary care for purposes of deduction of medical expenses. Uh, right. So uh, 
you know, we're, uh, we're waiting to see what happens next. But depending what the Texas Supreme Court does, this could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it would be interesting to see what the U.S. Supreme Court would do with this, with its current lineup. Who knows? We're in a I wouldn't very say difficult time. I would use the word scary. Um, yes. Scary. What they would do, but um, it might Elections be. Elections matter, folks. They do. And it's it's really, you know, a time to sit there and, and wonder why on earth it is that we are the only country in the world, besides one other small one, that elects judges in partisan elections and basically has somebody reviewing a law that needs the public in a partisan primary to vote for them in order to keep their job. Right. Um, it's, I mean, as we pointed out, that a, a big factor in this is that the Republican primaries for governor and attorney general were looming. And right. Abbott and Paxton were worried. Uh, I think Abbott in particular, because uh, he totally screwed up last winter, you know, when they had the power outages and everything. And it turned out the state was not spending the necessary money to maintain the grid, et cetera. Uh, so he was looking for an issue to uh, fire up his base. And this was the issue he found. Uh, and there was a lot of local criticism in the, in the uh, press and Texas about the attorney general and the governor uh, using transgender kids and their parents as a wedge issue for purposes of winning the primaries. And they did win the primaries. They were renominated. Sure. Yeah, they're the party of small government when it comes to spending on social services and essential programming. But when it comes to interfering in the lives and the protection of, of families and youth, oh, they, they, the government should absolutely get involved there. Um, it's just it's baffling and, and heartbreaking and tragic that trans kids continue to be pawns in a, a, a really crass political scheme. Um, and, and it's really sad. Um, but thank you so much for giving us an update on this case. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about another, not as high profile case, but certainly interesting. All right, we are back. Um, the case that we're talking about now uh, comes to us out of the Southern District of Georgia and was brought by the EEOC on behalf of a security officer who um, was offered a job, was HIV positive, and when the defendant found out that they were HIV positive, um, rescinded the offer. So uh, talk to us about this case art and also where things stand with HIV discrimination in, in, in employment. Okay, and, and this case is a good example. Uh, in fact, if you read through this case and you read through the account of this case in, in the April issue of Law Notes by Brandon Dollinger, one of my students here at New York Law School, who did a bang up job on this. I mean, it's factually very complex. And it basically reviews the article and the case, reviews exactly what happens. How does it work when uh, someone is offered a job, someone highly qualified is offered a job uh, and the offer is conditional on passing a physical. And then it comes out in the physical that they're HIV positive uh, and the employer gets cold feet. You know, what happens there? What are the legal issues? What are the steps that uh, employers have to go through to make a decision on something like this? Uh, and the position of the EEOC on this, they obviously consider this a very important case because they only litigate a very small number of cases. 
Uh, they don't have the staff to do a lot of litigation. So they only bring a case when they think it is really, really important to establish uh, what the law is. So in this case, uh, Corey McKeever applied for a position as a security officer at St. Joseph's Candler Health Systems, a hospital in Georgia. And uh, he was interviewed by uh, the hospital's manager of safety and security, who's the head of security, who was impressed, very impressed. He uh, reviewed the job application. He interviewed Mr. McKeever. He recommended that the hospital hire him. He gave McKeever the highest possible score in all categories on the applicant rating sheet. So this was without a doubt, a highly qualified person for the position. And so just days after the interview, the hospital gave McKeever a conditional offer of employment as a safety officer, and he accepted. Uh, his anticipated work date was supposed to be a few days later, but he had to clear a physical exam and process paperwork. And like all potential hospital employees, McKeever underwent a post-offer occupational health screening through the hospital's Occupational Health Services Department, the OHS department, it's referred to in the, uh, in the opinion uh, by Judge Baker here, Stan Baker. Uh, and during this screening, he was asked by the nurse employed by the OHS department for doing this, uh, you know, he's asked, was he HIV positive? You can ask that. In a, in a health screening. And he said, yes, I've, you know, I was diagnosed a few years ago. He said, I'm on medication. He said, um, my viral load is, and he, this is unfortunate. He used the words almost undetectable, which is wrong because it turns out when his medical records became an issue, it showed that his past HIV tests had been in the undetectable range is how it was described. It's all these tests are a range. It's in the undetectable range. But saying almost undetectable evidently raised a red flag. And uh, Nurse Elkins, Terry Elkins, uh, contacted Laura Floyd, the manager of the department, and expressed concerns about McKeever's HIV positive status regarding his potential role as a safety officer, because safety officers sometimes have to mix it up physically with uh, patients especially patients brought in by the police department from the scene of a crime or something who were, you know, who were wounded or something. And they brought into the hospital. And uh, sometimes uh, you have to deal with them. Uh, you also have to deal with people who are potentially suicidal. Uh, and uh, it seems uh, Floyd did some research, you know, how often does it happen that safety officers actually get into a physical altercation with the patient? That's a few times a year. Any given safety officer may and so the question is, is being HIV positive a disqualification for a safety officer job? Uh, and Floyd actually, uh, as you read what she did, she was very conscientious here. She got a medical opinion from uh, a doctor at the hospital. She researched things on the CDC website and uh, the conclusion she came to was that it was too risky. Now, uh, McKeever's position, uh, the EEOC's position is, he has repeatedly tested undetectable. And uh, the best science that we have says an undetectable person cannot transmit HIV. 
if the virus is, is at that low level of being undetectable. It's, it's not going to be transmitted. Uh, now, he said almost undetectable, but the tests that they had, and the most recent test they had was like a few months before uh, he, uh, he had uh, uh, applied and was referred uh, for the medical, uh, they didn't ask him to get a new test to see if he was presently undetectable, which would have been a better step to take. Uh, but in her research, Floyd found a mention of the fact that even though people are on medication, people on medication sometimes would have blips. That is, that there would be an increase in the presence of the virus in their blood, uh, but not large enough for them to notice it for it to be symptomatic of anything. Uh, and if they're taking their medication, the blips could disappear at some point. And maybe it's possible when someone has a blip and there's a slightly higher uh, viral count that they could transmit, but it's not clear. Uh, but for Floyd, that was enough. She felt her job was to cre create, you know, zero risk if possible. Uh, she didn't go back to the doctor for a new opinion after she read this stuff, which was unfortunate for her because when the doctor is deposed in this case, the doctor says, oh, no, he's, you know, He's not going to transmit it. It's almost zero risk to transmit it. Uh, but uh, they, they wouldn't uh, let him work as a safety officer. But Floyd said, let's see if we can find another position at the hospital that he's qualified for that he could do. And we can offer him that instead. Because lateral transfer can be a reasonable accommodation under the handicap discrimination, uh, disability discrimination laws for someone uh, who can't perform a job because of uh, a risk of infection, for example. Uh, and she found that there was a listing for uh, someone in OR support tech. That is a person who prepares people for surgery and helps to pre prepare the surgical theater, et cetera, has physical contact with people, but not of a type that would present any kind of risk. It's not like they're struggling physically, having an altercation with somebody. Uh, and uh, he actually, at their suggestion, interviewed with the OR support department and they were willing to offer him a job. But he decided once they described to him all the things that were involved, he said there were two hangups. He doesn't have a car and you have to be on call 24 seven and you have to be able to get there. And secondly, he said, I would have to have a lot of training because I haven't training on any of the stuff they've asked me to do. They would be asking me to do. I don't have the training for that. I'm trained as a security officer, not as a tech support person for the operating room. Uh, so he, uh, he didn't want to take that. He said, I think I could be a security officer. So he went to the EEOC and the EEOC agreed with him and said, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, we consider HIV infection, even if it's an undetectable rate, to be a disability under the statute. And uh, you are obviously qualified for the job. And to be protected under the statute, you have to be qualified. Now, one aspect of being qualified under the statute is not presenting a significant risk of harm to customers, clients, in this case, patients or coworkers. And that's where the rubber hits the road in this case. Uh, it's it's a, a judgment call, but it's also a, a question of science. Uh, is someone with undetectable HIV infection, 
that is an undetectable viral load. The infection is detectable because he's got antibodies as a result of the, uh, of the virus uh, being in his, in his system. Uh, so how to do this, you know? And uh, there's uh, cross motions for summary judgment here. Uh, they're claiming he's not qualified. They're claiming he didn't suffer an adverse personnel decision because they offered him another job that they considered just as good. It was similarly an entry-level job. He would have been paid pretty much the same. Uh, and he argued, no, this job is different. This job requires uh, skills and training that I haven't had. It requires that I have a car. You know, there's all these uh, complications. And so I think uh, it's an adverse personnel decision. They're not willing to hire me as a security officer and I'm qualified for that. They decided I was qualified for that. Uh, so the judge said, and this is a judge appointed by Donald Trump. Interesting to know. But the judge said, look, you know, and the judge evidently went through very methodically through all of this. He said, uh, what it comes down to really is whether he presents a substantial risk. And the hospital is saying, yes, he's EEOC, which is representing him. EEOC is saying, no, he doesn't present a substantial risk. I think we need to have a hearing on this. I don't think this can be decided on a summary judgment motion. I think we need to have medical testimony. I think we have to have you know testimony from experts. Uh, after the case was filed, uh, he went back and got another test another viral load test, and he's still tested in the uh, undetectable range. So, you know, he's not experiencing a blip. And the problem is that in deciding, you can't decide based on generalizations about a class. You have to make an individual determination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so the determination has to be based on him and his health status, not on general statements about what is true generally of people who are HIV positive and taking medication. So you look at the CDC website, they say if people are compliant with their medication, uh, it may be reduced to zero and there may be these occasional blips, uh, but they go away with increased medication, you know, because you, you continually take the medication on a regular basis. Uh, so, uh, and the idea that he might have a blip at the exact time when he gets into an altercation with the patient is totally speculative. So the judge says, I can grant summary judgment against the hospital at this point uh, because there, there are questions of fact. Also, there's a question of fact as to whether uh, there was an adverse personnel decision or whether this uh, OR tech decision is a real lateral move uh, for which he's qualified that would uh, count as an accommodation. Uh, so uh, he, gave, he granted summary judgment as to some of the issues in the case to the EOC, uh, that the guy is qualified, that the guy has a disability. And remember, this was a hard won victory 20 years ago in the US Supreme Court to get them to say that being HIV positive is a disability uh, because uh, it was a rather novel question under the Americans with Disability Act, even though it was clear that Congress intended it to be. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it was, uh, and, and there were issues under the Rehabilitation Act before we had the ADA. We, we had uh, a Rehabilitation Act case, which suggested that someone with tuberculosis that was in an inactive stage was a person with a disability. And that was uh, the precedent that we were using in the HIV cases during the 1990s. Uh, so this case is, is certainly not over because now 
there has to be uh, uh, a hearing on these questions that are left open. Uh, but uh, it's important for people to know uh, the procedure here. I, it, is, it is pretty clear, it's pretty clearly established under the ADA and under most state anti-discrimination laws that cover disability, and firstly all the states now, uh, that being HIV positive is a disability. The issue really goes to job qualifications. Uh, the issue goes to whether somebody would prevent uh, a substantial risk. Uh, and uh, in that case, uh, if it can't be accommodated, if, it can, if the risk can't be abated through a reasonable accommodation, uh, they're out of luck. Uh, in this case, you have a big hospital with lots of different positions in it. There are other positions that he could fill perhaps, and they offered one and the question is whether that's sufficient or whether it's not, or whether he's entitled uh, to an order that they hire him or at least pay him damages. I'm wondering whether as a result of this opinion, uh, before a judge and uh, a judge was appointed by Donald Trump, we have to assume a very conservative judge, uh, ticking off all the boxes for uh, you know the Federalist Society people who were basically screening the judges. Uh, Maybe the hospital will negotiate something, but uh, it's hard to tell. But it's it's important that uh, this opinion came out as a good opinion. It's worth reading for people who are practicing in this area. Very interesting, and you know, at the very least, you want this to be you know part of the advantage of being in a court uh, rather than a legislature. Is you're going to have when things are based on facts, when evidence is presented, when the science is leading and some decision about the outcome is based on that science and um, rather than po policy and public opinion or whatever it might be. So it's good that, that that at least is happening, even though I wish it weren't a Trump judge hearing the evidence. Well, um, one thing that I, I point out in, in this issue of Law Notes, uh, I think I put it in the Law and Society section, uh, I've noticed as I'm doing law notes, I'm, you know, I'm reading a lot of district court decisions around the country, the ubiquity of Trump appointed judges. You know, there are so many of them. They're popping up in so many of our cases. And uh, sometimes we win, but usually before a Trump appointed judge, we lose. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, once we get up into the Court of Appeals, uh, Trump appointed a lot of Court of Appeals judges, too. And, and you know, I, I see a refugee case and it's three Republicans from the Ninth Circuit, which is atypical because uh, a majority of the Ninth Circuit judges are still Democratic appointees. And Biden has already started appointing judges to the Ninth Circuit. But there are some circuits where uh, when you add the Trump judges to the Bush judges and George W. Bush appointed very conservative people, uh, you get some three judge panels that you don't want to be in front of right. in an LGBT rights case. Yeah, I think to end on a positive note, I think Biden's named about 90 judges so far, 90, which- I don't think all 90 have been confirmed yet. No, just named. Um, and it, we're going to get in a situation where if they continue to announce, um, we're coming up on a Senate election. It's very clear that if we lose the Senate, you're not going to get a single judge. Through. Well, you'll get a few because they may compromise on a few people. But a few in very either liberal states or where a Republican, you know, does the picking and Biden's hands are forced to nominate the kind of conservative judge, perhaps. Otherwise, ooh, it'll certainly be a trickle compared to the the spout that we've seen flowing so far. Right. Um, 
All right. So do you have enough note for us, Art? I always have enough note. But this this time, instead of talking about a case, I'm talking about if you look at the legislative notes section uh-huh. of the uh, the April issue of Law Notes, you will see this flood of legislation. And it's all about transgender and mainly transgender kids. Arizona, March 30th. Arizona Governor Ducey signed into law two anti-transgender bills. Uh, one bans gender-affirming surgery for minors, and the other bars trans girls and women from participating in female sports in grades K through 12 or college and universities in either public or private schools. That's Arizona. Florida, uh, March 28th, Governor DeSantis signed the Parental Rights and Education Act, which says uh, it's it's usually referred to as the don't say gay law. And then people who are defending DeSantis says, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say don't say gay. Gay isn't mentioned. Well, it says that you can't uh, teach people about sexual orientation or gender identity in, K, in grades K through three. And you can't do uh, education that is not grade appropriate in all the grades. And what's grade appropriate? Well, that's not defined in the statute. So that has put a chill on teachers in Florida about what you can say and what you can't say and what you can let students say in class. And there's a lot of indecision about that. It's going to be challenged in the courts uh, already. Uh, Equality Florida and others filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida. So maybe by next month, we'll have something to talk about in the way of a preliminary injunction or something like that. Then Indiana. And here there was a bit of a hopeful sign. Uh, the uh, legislature passed a law that would prohibit transgender girls and women from competing in scholastic women's sports, but the Republican governor, Eric Holcomb, vetoed it. But it was widely believed that the veto will be overridden uh, because there is a big Republican majority in the legislature. And I'm just giving you an update as of the end of March for the April issue of notes. Then we turn to Iowa. Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law a bill that bans transgender girls and women in the state from competing in sports consistent with their gender identity. All public and private K through 12 schools, as well as community colleges and institutions of higher education affiliated with the NCAA or the NAIA. Uh, This is to protect cisgender girls and women from unfair competition, she says. Uh, Opponents expect it to be challenged in the courts under Title IX. And uh, most of these athletic competition bills will be challenged under Title IX, which uh, the Biden administration interprets based on the Bostock decision uh, to ban gender identity discrimination. Then we turn to Oklahoma. On March 30th, Governor Kevin Stitt signed into law Senate Bill 2, which is called the Save Women's Sports Act. Guess Guess what it's about? Same thing. Uh, Then South Dakota. Uh, Governor Christie Nomi, March 30th, signed into law, quote, an act to protect students from critical race theory. And, well, Art, I'm depressed. And then we turn to Tennessee. Okay. Last year, Tennessee legislated against transgender girls participating in scholastic sports competition. Uh, the legislature most recently has been looking at a bill that would give more teeth to the law. Uh, threatening to cut off state funding for any school district that allows transgender girls to compete with cisgender girls in sports. And finally, Utah. 
I'm doing. I'm proceeding alphabetically, as you see. Obviously, uh, on March 25, Utah legislators voted to override Republican Governor Spencer Cox's veto of a law slated to go into effect July 1 that bans transgender girls from participating in girls' scholastic sports competition. Now, we've already got at least one or two district courts around the country who have ruled that these uh, laws, state laws, violate Title IX. But what we don't have yet is a Supreme Court decision making clear that Title IX should be interpreted the way Title VII is interpreted. And we don't yet have a Supreme Court decision saying that the anti-discrimination provisions of the Affordable Care Act should be interpreted the way Title VII is interpreted. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of sex discrimination under the Affordable Care Act, the references to Title IX. So like, it's, it's critically important that we get some good appellate precedents on Title IX. And I don't know if we will. I mean, if, if we get up to the Supreme Court now, the Supreme Court now is slightly different from what it was when Bostock was decided in 2020. Uh, you know, we've, we've had some uh, additions to the court, some more conservatives. Who knows? Who knows? And Bostock itself might actually uh, be in danger. Uh, right now, we've got uh, we've got the three remaining Democrats, one of whom is about to be replaced uh, with Judge Jackson. We've got uh, Chief Justice Roberts and we've got uh, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the Bostock decision. So that makes five that we think we can count on. Uh, and we'll see what happens. Uh, if the Senate goes Republican and an opening comes up in the Supreme Court, Biden is not going to be able to get anyone confirmed. And if a Indeed. Republican is elected in 2024 and the Senate goes Republican, we may get another Republican for one of the Democrats. But the Democrats are all young. I mean, those Democrats, uh, Judge Sotomayor, uh, Justice Kagan, now Justice Jackson coming in in July, uh, they will be the youngest members of the court. They'll be there for a while. So there, there's a core group to build upon if a Democratic president gets in. Uh, but uh, of, the of the Republican uh, justices, uh, they're still mostly relatively young as Supreme Court justices go. I mean, Thomas is in his 70s. and He's the senior of them. So and had a health scare. So you just never know. I mean, the, the truth is we just never know. Right. Scalia was a surprise. Uh, Thomas could have. I mean, the news looked bad for a minute there. Um, so you just you really don't know. And but this, this legislative trend, I mean, in yeah. just a few weeks since the end of March, we've seen developments, which we'll talk about next month. Uh, but we've got to watch this legislation and we've got to hold these state legislators accountable because 100%. I mean, uh, I mean, just one of the things that I'll mention, Alabama, the governor of Alabama signed several bills uh, just a few days ago. You know, we're, we're uh, recording this on the, on the 15th uh, and uh, Governor Ivey uh, signed a bill making it a felony for a doctor to provide gender affirming care to a transgender minor. So. You know, this, the, the, the trend in the legislature is, is not good for us right now. All right. Well, thank you so much for the update, Art. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back with the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT podcast next month. Thank you.